Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Hello, Warren. <laughs> what a nice place. Remember when you were a kid? Well, part of you still is. Fago remembers, and so does the Fago book. We are going to take you back to the early 1900s, to times before you were a kid, to tell you the Fago story. The Fago book is a story of loyalty. It is a story of destiny. It is the story of how you sometimes must choose and how life can come up with surprising solutions. This story could not be told without Susie Faginson. She is the daughter of Phil Faginson and the granddaughter of one of Fago's co-founders, Ben Faginson. She tells so many wonderful stories in the book. I really enjoyed meeting her and talking to her. Let's get three things straight before we start. First of all, we're here because we love Fago or are at least curious about it. Second, we love Detroit and Michigan as Fago has for more than a decade. And third, we're going to call it pop. Not soda, not Cokes, that's right, not carbonated beverages, pop. Some of us love Fago so much, we invite it to our weddings. It's also been to some wakes. We sing songs about Fago. We debate about our favorite flavors. We just love Fago. We bake it into other things such as candles, bicycles, ice cream, that's rock and rye ice cream, cupcakes, and we even bake it into our tattoos. My. So let's see how Fago came to be and how it came to be a part of who we are. This is also a story of immigration, of invention, and innovation. It is, above all, a story of loyalty and love. It all began around 1900, a little bit after, when Detroit was becoming one of the fastest growing cities in the whole world. Immigrants poured into Detroit and they began inventing great food. The Greeks came and made Coney Islands, yes. Mm. Italians brought a lot of things, including the better made chips that Karen Dibus wrote about. That was the Greek families on that potato chip company. Fred Sanders Schmidt came from Germany. Pickle maker Franjo Vlasic came here from what is now Bosnia. Germak Nuts was founded by three Syrian brothers and who knows where Kowalski came from? That's a toughie. Around 1905, two Russian Jews, brothers Perry and Ben Faginson, dropped in on Detroit. Perry had been a baker, and Ben had worked at his in-laws pop factory in Cleveland. In Detroit, Perry began by baking, but soon realized that bakers get up far too early. So he called in his little brother Ben, Susie's grandfather, and they turned frosting recipes into pop. You heard me. Fago got its start as frosting flavored pop. 
That explains a lot, doesn't it? The Faginson Brothers Bottling Company's original flavors were a fruit punch, grape, and strawberry, which we now call Red Pop. The Fago book has six sections. They are colored with Red Pop, Grape, Orange, Rock and Rye, Moon Mist, and Arctic Sun. And the pages are filled with soda bubbles that will make the book pop. The Red Pop section is about our love for Fago and how it all began. We start with the Faginson brothers setting up business in a little house on Detroit's Near East Side. According to Ben Faginson, they began with two tubs for washing bottles, pots and pans for mixing, a hose for filling, and a contraption for hand capping. Early deliveries were made this way. These horses knew the delivery route so well that if you wanted to take the horse wagon to Temple, it would stop at every saloon along the way. <laughs> it was hard to make a living on three cents each, two for a nickel, and the Faginson brothers at that time would make pop on one day, then shut down the operation and deliver it the next day, then go back and make some more, take another day to deliver. In those days, bottlers had to get the bottles back or they would soon go out of business. Um, it's a pretty crazy business model, but actually the product cost less than the thing it was inside of. At first, people thought pop was only a summertime drink. Perry said that in winter, when they weren't making much pop, he and Ben would take bread down to the Detroit River to be ferried across to Canada, and they would come back up into the city with fish. I remember there was no bridge until 1929 and no tunnel until 1930, so everybody crossed on a ferry. During the early 20th century, Detroit's population boomed. From 1900 to 1910, just 10 years, the city grew from 286,000 people to 466. By 1920, it more than doubled again, and it hit 994,000 people in 1920, triple what it was in 1900, way more than it is today. In 1900 through 1920, one-third of the people in Detroit were foreign-born. That was actually down from 40% in 1870. Today, it is less than 10%. The new auto industry grew Detroit and everything about it. In 1912, with more customers, the Fagansons started fueling up with gasoline instead of hay. In 1914, Henry Ford started a global gold rush to Detroit by announcing the $5 day, which was only eight hours long. People read headlines about this all around the world and flooded to Detroit. Somebody had to feed and hydrate all these people, and here are the Fagansons with all this delicious pop. At the time, a lot of pop was sold at pop stands, and the Fagansons took advantage of this. There was a big pop stand across from Ford's main gate. Uh, Henry Ford did not care much for pop. He called it belly wash. And he had the gates shut at lunchtime so the workers wouldn't run outside to buy pop. Fortunately, there was a lot of people hanging around outside the gates trying to be hired so the Fagans could still sell a lot of pop. They sold so much pop, in fact, that in 1920, they moved into a beautiful new factory. In this new factory, the Faginson brothers, they could bottle 75,000 bottles of Fago in one day, and the human hand never had to fill or cap any of them. It was all mechanized. This new plant was not far from the old one. They moved way over, like four blocks over, to open their 1920 factory at Bobian and Erskine, 
their present plant is on Gratiot Avenue. And that's where they still are. Their whole history was walkable. Uh, by the way, next month on the 4th, Fago will turn 111 years old, and they've always been right there since before they were making pop. Uh, Hastings and Paradise Valley and Black Bottom uh, was what the neighborhood was. The Fagansons moved into the Jewish enclave. African Americans had to live in this neighborhood because the rest of the city had deed restrictions to keep them out. So you'll see that as the Fagansons hired from the neighborhood, they hired a lot of black employees, and it became an issue. The book's grape section, the next section, is all about the key ingredients in pop, the key elements, soda water, flavor, and sweetener. In 1920, when the brothers opened their new factory, they also changed the name of the stuff they were selling to Fago, and eventually changed the name of the company. They said it fit better on the bottles. Because pop is pressurized, that's where it gets its name, and no, Fago did not invent that is the name. It was already around before Fago started. But because it's pressurized, it, if it goes flat, it's no good. It doesn't have any pop. And any kind of invisible impurity in the water will make the pop go flat. So this is one reason why the Fagansons would deliver it as soon as they made it. It couldn't sit around on the shelf for long. You had to get it out to people. Many people got their soda water from a soda jerk. Um, I say that with respect. In a pharmacy, a pharmacy besides selling uh, ice cream sodas also sells uh, medicine. So it's no accident that Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Dr. Pepper, Verner's were all invented by pharmacists. Here's what happened. When people first discovered naturally occurring carbonated water or soda water, they thought it must be pretty healthy, so they sat in it. Just like people used to sit in sulfur water and hot springs, they sat in this water and they said, oh, that makes me feel pretty good. It must be good for me. It's good for my muscles. And then somebody said, hey, you know what? If this is good to sit in, maybe it's also good to drink. So why don't you get me some water that nobody sat in yet, and I'll drink that. And they said, yeah, I feel good. Soda water must be some kind of medicinal thing. And then it didn't take long before pharmacists said, well, let's take some of this medicine and put it into soda water and sell it to our customers without the ice cream, and they can have it for whatever ails them. Now, this is not the Fago story. Um, Matt Rosenthal, who I just met for the first time two days ago, was the marketing director. And for Fago's 100th anniversary in 2007, he told uh, the Toledo Blade, quote, we always recognized the product for what it was. This is not penicillin. This is not a miracle drug of any sort. It's just pop. Um, other people started with a different idea. Fago's strategy from the beginning, its first three flavors, was to offer a rainbow of flavors or a symphony of flavors and to keep experimenting and to get some flavors that people would love every year. Red Pop has been around since the beginning. Same with uh, Fruit Punch and Grape. If they stop those flavors, it's going to be big news. Uh, those have been there, but other flavors have come in and gone out as tastes change, as people get tired of one thing and want to try something new. In 1972, Mort Faganson, now he was one of Perry's sons, Mort Fagan, and Mort was the second part of the second generation to run the company, uh, Mort said, quote, it's 1972, 
It takes 107 ingredients to produce our current line of 28 flavors. Of course, many of those flavors were fruit concentrates. Grape was made from grape juice. Fruit punch had different fruits in it, made from juice. Natural products can mean problems. Grape, that original flavor, required special handling because it can ferment. If it ferments, it becomes wine. It's not a problem for me, but under the strictest kosher rules for Passover, machines had to be cleaned and the grape had to be made and bottled under rabbinical supervision. An Orthodox Jewish reporter who moved to work at the Free Press with me got here and she said, I was so happy to find out that the local pop company, although I think she called it a soda company, from New York, the local company uh, has every flavor is kosher, including the grape. And of course I had to say, what do you mean including the grape? Like, is that weird or what? She said, oh yeah, grape is hard to make kosher. Another problem with natural fruit flavors can be the way they behave. While you probably expected that Fago had some pops that flopped, one was called Eve, it was a great, uh, an apple-flavored pop. It's not around. Uh, you might not know that Fago had one pop that actually exploded. When Fago first made pineapple orange pop, it used pineapple juice from Dole in Hawaii. The juice was not pasteurized. This means that the juice fermented inside the bottles, which started blowing their tops all over town. <laughs> it started busting out the lights inside the Fago factory. It was busting out the lights in Dearborn where the mayor said, this pop is a menace, get it out of our town. Uh, the pop was kicked out of Dearborn. Uh, the workers at Fago went on strike for a little bit. Pretty soon, Dole shipped pasteurized pineapple juice to Fago. They remade the pops and everything quieted down. And that became a popular pop. Interesting, I would like to get a bottle of pineapple orange. It's not sold up here. It's sold in the South only. There are three flavors that are only sold in the South. Um, pineapple orange, uh, uh, jazz and bluesberry, and there's another one that's kind of a weird combination of pineapple and something. Uh, no, no, uh, no, watermelon and something else. Flavor is where Fago really made its name, of course. The number of Fago flavors keeps going up and down uh, as flavors are retired, new ones come out, and some are re-released. Last year, Fago had a Facebook event to announce it was releasing Arctic Sun, which had come out in the 90s and then was called off. Well, they reintroduced, I kind of like it. It's grapefruit with cherry. I think it, it reminds me of squirt a little bit. I like squirt. One of my cousins said that it tastes like cleaning fluid. <laughs> and I like to drink it, and it does clean things too. <laughs> it's kind of a multi-purpose thing. The book lists more than 100 Fago flavors, and I don't think my list is complete. It's the best I could do. Now I want to talk to you about my favorite, favorite, favorite flavor. Rock and rye. So on the left, there's a picture of an old ad from the 1880s. And we see a woman with an impossibly thin waist and an impossibly thin glass having a sip of Van Beel's Rye and Rock. Now this lady, I'm guessing, is a teetotaler. She's probably one of those women who would not let a drop of alcohol pass her lips. 
but she had to have her medicine. Her medicine is made from rye whiskey and rock candy sugar. That's where the name comes from. Um, she maybe didn't know that, or maybe she didn't want to think about it, but she probably had to have that medicine in that tiny glass six or eight times a day for her health. Van Beal, on the back of his package, said, I own the name Ryan Rock and all variations of it. Do not try to use my name, Ryan Rock, or anything like it, or you will be sued. And he, in fact, did sue a Detroit pop company called Wegner's, and he lost. Because really, Rock and Rye, as we know it, was the first bottle cocktail sold in the United States. It was made from the rye whiskey, the rock candy sugar, and then some people, different makers would put in whorehound, that old-fashioned candy, or cinnamon. Um, uh, you could put honey in there. I, I bought some of the alcoholicine just to see how close it was to the other rock and rye. And I tasted it extensively. Um, we put lime juice in it. That we thought that helped it out a little bit. And so that's where the, the name comes from. Another thing about rock and rye, have you ever heard that song about the rock candy mountain? A nice children's song with uh, all the lollipop trees and the little streams of soda pop. Really sweet. Originally it was a hobo song and those were cigarette trees and those were little streams of alcohol and the hobos used to sing about this rock candy mountain where the jails had no doors and all the cops had rubber legs. <laughs> um, but it got cleaned up and people went for the G rating and took the alcohol and the cigarettes out of there. Harvey Lipsky was not a Faganson, but like many, many Fagan employees, he worked there more than 50 years. They really kept people around a long time. Harvey went in there as a chemist because Fago was inventing all these flavors that needed chemists and technicians and tasters. And Harvey was such a good employee, he worked his way up through the ranks and became very trusted. He became known as Mr. Fago, even though he was not a Faganson. And he was seen as kind of the company historian. People call, well, he called himself the elixir, the chief elixir mixer. Now, all the recipes at Fago are secret. I think that's all they keep in the vault is the recipes. The old man, Perry, was getting on and it was hard to climb up the ladders over all the vats and everything and he said, Harvey, I think it's time I showed you how to make the rock and rye. Oh, okay. Put in a little of this and a lot of that and some of this and a pinch of this and a little bit of this. And then when you have all the ingredients in there and you mix them up, then you have to say the incantation and wave a towel over it. And Harvey said, well, he thought, I don't think he told Perry this, he said, I'm a chemist. We don't use incantations. We don't wave towels to make things. We just mix this stuff up. It's chemistry. It never came out right when he did that. Finally, Harvey said, I'm going to have to try it with the incantation and waving the towel. And he said, I don't know how that works but it sure helped the rock and rye. If the carbonated water is most of what's in pop and the flavors give it its character, the real political element in all of this is the sweetener. And by sweetener, I mean sugar and I mean artificial sweeteners. Now you might think artificial sweeteners came on kind of later, but saccharin, the first one we really used a lot of, was invented in 1879 and it was used around then. Um, Sadly, the three main sweeteners were all discovered when somebody working in a lab 
on break put their fingers in their mouth or smoked a cigarette and said, wow, why is that so sweet? Eureka! So one sweetener is made from, I think saccharin is made from coal tar, and you wouldn't normally try to taste that, but somebody tasted it by accident and said, we got something here. Um, sugar has been extremely political in our country's past. We have uh, toppled governments for sugar. Uh, if you remember history and the slave trade, that was a triangle trade is what they called it. And the three sides of that triangle were slaves, and sugar was another one. I forget what the other one was. But that was involved in the sugar trade. You, won't, you didn't want to sail a bunch of empty ships around, so after you dropped off slaves in the United States, you filled those ships with sugar and sent them to Europe. When the Great War came, those ships were needed, those sugar ships were needed for the war. So the federal government, through the, through the what was it called, the, the Food Administration, ran a campaign to persuade people to use less sugar. You didn't have to, there was no law, but there was a big campaign on Sugar means ships. The sugar used in sweet drinks must be brought to America in ships. Last year, 400 million pounds of sugar were imported for sweet drinks. These ships must now be used to carry soldiers to the front. Drink less sweetened beverages. We are at war, people. Every spoonful, every sip means less for a fighter. So they tried to get people to use less sugar during World War I. At this time, we were importing sugar, not making most of it ourselves. And the real problem was not the sugar shortage, but the ships being used to transport it. So now we move to after the war, and this is 1935, 1937, and the Fagenson's nice factory from 1920, they had to give it up. The federal government said, okay, we need the land where your factory is. We're gonna build the Brewster Douglas housing project for low-income African-American residents right where your factory is. So you gotta move. So the Fagansons went out, and this time little brother kind of led the decision on this, I think, because Perry said, I thought Ben had, he was crazy. He picked too big of a place. So they bought this place on Gratiot Avenue. It used to be a truck factory, and before that it was a place where you would go to buy, sell, and trade horses. The Fagansons were very big supporters of the next war that came. After the Great War, they started numbering them. So when World War II came, uh, the Fagansons were involved with uh, other Jewish merchants, food merchants typically, in donating food, hosting uh, uh, bond parties where you would buy war bonds. They bought a lot of war bonds themselves. And in the most uh, generous sacrifice you can make for the war, uh, Ben and Perry sent three of their sons to the war as soldiers. And what happened in World War II was not long after Pearl Harbor, the federal government began to ration sugar. That's the first thing they rationed. They started rationing uh, rubber for tires, uh, fat, uh, tin, meat, shoes, all kinds of food and products because they needed that stuff for the soldiers. So sugar was the first thing to be rationed and the last thing to be derationed. Now, interesting thing. If you were Fago, 
the federal government first came around and said, all sugar use, you're cut down to 80% of what you used last year. You're limited. 80% for companies that made candy, cookies, cakes, pop, really hard. And then it went down to 70%. Um, Perry later said, because his brother Ben died during the 40s, and, um, and one of his sons did too. He said, we almost didn't make it out of the 1940s. Between the rationing and loss of people in the family, it was a really tough decade. Now, Coca-Cola made out okay, because what Coca-Cola had been doing is Coca-Cola had been telling everybody that Coke refreshes, and who needs refreshment more than a soldier? So they did a big campaign that we need to send Coca-Cola to these hard-working, fighting men and women so that they can win this war. And we even had generals writing to Washington saying, we need more Coke, we need more Coca-Cola, we got to get it to the troops. Another thing that helped a little bit was a Coca-Cola executive had a seat on the sugar rationing board. You've heard about the fox and the chicken coop? So the rule was that Coca-Cola could have as much sugar as it needed to supply the troops. And in fact, Coca-Cola had to build factories around the world. Wherever there were US men and women fighting, they had to be making Coca-Cola. And patriotic company that it was, Coca-Cola said, we will get Coke to all the troops no matter how much it costs. And this made them a global brand while everybody else was kind of suffering. Now the Fagansons, especially Perry, the old man, did not like these giant companies. Uh, I think Coca-Cola recruited both Faganson boys, uh, and Ben Faganson at one point said, uh, he'd been recruited by Coca-Cola, and he said, uh, what kind of name is Coca-Cola? He thought that they should stay small and local. The boys came back from the war, Fago's having its annual party, and they're celebrating their 40th anniversary. And this is kind of the unofficial handing of the reins of Fago over to the next generation. Now, um, it didn't really happen cleanly because somebody kept coming to work. <laughs> a weird thing that happened in, in that area on Gratiot Avenue, that area where the horse mart was, where Fago moved in, was known in Detroit at the time as Pop Alley. There were 40 or more bottlers there, and so Fago was right in where everybody made all the pop. And as they were there, this company, that company, they started to disappear. There was a company called Grilly. There was a company called Atlas. Atlas was on the border of Hamtramck, I think, in Detroit. Uh, I think there was a company called Bulldog, Town Club. Somebody said Sweet 16 was a company. Um, I think it would be fun to dig through the old city directories and find all these companies and where they were. Well, as companies began moving out, uh, Coke moved away from there. The Dawson family of the Dawson Great Lakes Museum, maybe you've been there, they were the Pepsi bottlers here. They moved out of that area. Uh, Verner's was not there. Verner's was uh, on, on Woodward. Um, but as they moved out, Fago would buy their buildings and attach them. So the first generation with Perry at the steam shovel, they ran the company for 40 years. You saw the 40 on the table. He stayed there actually longer. This generation, ran the company for about 40 years again. Uh, that's a lot of longevity. Um, but they've also had some employees who stayed there for a long time. And now this was an interesting thing. Um, 
an African-American employee hired in 1937, when this factory was pretty new, recalled when the union came to organize the factory and, you know, talk to the workers, then you talk to the bosses, and said, uh, Mr. Faganson, uh, your workers need a union. I think they want one, and we're going to put one in here. But, you know, one thing that's going to have to change here is you have too many black employees. And, um, yeah, the unions were not good with that at first. So here's a little quote from Perry. Uh, this uh, African-American employee recalled Perry saying, Go to hell! Fago hires from the neighborhood around us, and that's how we're going to continue to hire whenever we can. And they did. And in 1967, Susie Faganson worked at the Fago plant in the summer. She was a student, and she was working in her father and uncle's plant for the summer. And you remember what happened in 67? Yeah. So she was riding to work with her father, not that Monday, because they were closed, but later in the week. And she's going down Grash with him, and all these stores are burned, broken into, looted. She's like, oh my God. It's still not entirely safe to be everywhere. She said, what will the factory look like? She got to the factory. She said, not one window was broken. Later on, the free press said, oh yes, one window was broken. Leave it to the newspaper, you know, to spoil a good story. So she got in, she said, why did the, what, what? On her father's big wooden desk, he and Mort worked at two big wooden desks pushed together. Not very fancy, they answered all their own phones, they didn't have a secretary. And um, on the desk was a note that said, Johnson, $20. Jones, $15. Green, $15. She said, I think they're loaning money to people in the neighborhood. So that's why people didn't attack the plant. But earlier that year, a few months before July, like in April, there was an article in the Michigan Chronicle, the African-American newspaper in Detroit. And I can never find the article because it's not on the microfilm. That issue is missing. I think it's just an accident. I don't think there's a conspiracy. And that issue is missing. But there's a card in the Burton Historical Collections that tells you what was in the article. And the card that somebody hand wrote at the library said that Fago was celebrating or marking its hiring practices and it reported that 60% of the male workers at Fago were black and 75% of the production workers were. The Monday after all that trouble started, these workers from the neighborhood showed up to work. The Fagans said, you, you can't, we're closed. There's a riot going on. We can't have you working here. Go home, stay safe, we'll call you when it's okay to come back. Um, Mort, now this is a few years later, and he's talking about um, the hiring in the plant, and he tells the Detroit News, quote, it took us some time to catch on to what all the affirmative action talk was all about because we had been doing it quite naturally for years. Actually, we had dropped some customers, and others dropped us, because they were upset when we first started using black drivers for our delivery trucks many years ago. So can you imagine, you call people say, um, I don't know about this driver. They say, yeah, why don't you get the town club instead? Um, to throw your business away. Uh, the Moon Mist section is about advertising. In Pop Alley, you're trying hard to make, to make a name for yourself. So, Harvey Lipsky, the guy with the towel and the rock and ride, told Susie that what happened was her father said, when we get these new trucks, let's paint them different colors on the, on the different sides. 
That way, if I'm walking along Gratiot, I see, there goes a red truck. Oh, there goes a blue truck. Those Fagansons must be doing pretty well. They have a lot of trucks. So they tried to make it look like their fleet was twice as big as it really was by using the paint that way. Another thing Susie recalls doing is going out with her family on Sunday to buy food for, you know, brunch. And they would go into a store that sold Fago. And while somebody distracted the shopkeeper, they would put all the Fago up to eye level because that's where you want to be. And she also said that her father knew who he wanted to sell Fago to, like which business owners, and, but they didn't have them yet. So he would figure out where they lived and how they would drive to work, and he would make sure that all the stores along the route had lots and lots of Fago, so that this guy, if he stopped in to check on his competition, would say, wow, I'm missing the boat here. Everybody has a lot of Fago. We better get some in our stores, too. 1935 is when uh, Fago began to step up its advertising game. Um, before they got there, they were doing it like mail pouch tobacco and a lot of other places. And you would pay a store owner to paint your billboard on the side of their building. And uh, then later on, somebody would come and make two windows in it and a place for a blower fan or something. So these signs were painted, and then they weren't always maintained, and some of them faded out and became ghost signs. Now, the donor company, which came in in about 1935, was a small advertising company that had a bunch of people selling ads. It was called the Vest Pocket Company. Like, you worked there, but you were still independent. That's what Vest Pocket meant then. And uh, Fago agreed to give donor $2,000 for that year's account, which is not much money today for an advertising account. But in 1935, independent pop company, it was a start. It helped Fago and it helped donor. Jim Henson, before he was doing Sesame Street, was making commercials with puppets. And so what he was doing was making eight-second commercials for station breaks on television. And uh, the big puppet is named Wilkins, and the little puppet is named Wonkins. He was making, he made more than 100 commercials for a coffee, coffee company called Wilkins, and the commercials usually went like this. Wilkins would have a cup of coffee, and he'd say, hey, Wonkins, have some of this coffee. It's really good. And of course, Wonkins wouldn't have any coffee. So then something painful would happen to Wonkins, and it usually involved a guillotine, a cannon, a heavy weight, and it was always very painful. And people and kids kind of liked this sense of humor because they weren't sure, are we supposed to laugh at that? It's kind of funny, but ouch. In this commercial, you see Wilkins sitting on the edge of a swimming pool. It has ladders on there and a life preserver on the wall. And uh, in the eight-second spot, uh, you hear Wonkins going, help, help, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And Wonkins pops up and sinks back down again. And Wilkins says, I told him he'd drink Red Pop. <laughs> so there, we like that kind of humor, don't we? Donor came up with an idea for a commercial that wasn't that popular, but they thought, well, we'll try it. But we want to have it ready to go out in the summer. Well, if you're going to shoot a commercial on the Boblo boat in the summer, it's not going to be ready till the fall. So the commercial was actually shot off Acapulco on a tour boat called the Fiesta. And they just asked people, do you want to be in a commercial? And so they shot it uh, during the winter or early spring down near Mexico. And then they brought it up here and we could watch it all summer long. 
On the boat, they sing this song. Remember when you were a kid, question mark? This was supposed to be a jingle for Fago. It became so popular that it moved up the record charts, or the music charts, and Fago wound up selling about 75,000 copies of this record for a quarter each. It was super popular, and of course there's a lot of these around. You just have trouble finding anything to play them on. Uh, but the real, the real, the real big break uh, for Fago and TV commercials came in 1965. What happened was the Detroit Tigers decided they would sell advertising in a new way, and one of their guys would do it, and he said, you know, I don't know anything about TV except how to turn one on. And uh, he was in charge of selling the advertising. And this opened the door for Fago to buy commercials during televised Tiger games, which they could not afford. It went to Stroh and Goebel and big companies like that. Uh, Mort Faganson, uh, seeing the success of getting Tiger ads, was horrified when Donor came in and said, hey, good news, Mort. When we bought the uh, TV commercial on the Tiger game, we got Traverse City, we got Toledo, we're all over. And Mort said, bad news, we have no Fago in Toledo. There's no Fago in Traverse City. People are going to be mad at us. Can we get blacked out? And Donor said, well, it's going to be very expensive to get blacked out of those markets. So the Fagansons scrambled around, got $30,000 together, and supplied those communities with Fago. And the people loved it. Now, with Perry out of the way, Perry, the guy who didn't want to invade places like Cleveland, where his in-laws had a place, a pop place, the second generation is like, okay, we get it. We can be huge. We can be regional or national. We're going to Toledo. We're going to Traverse City. We're going to Cleveland. We're going to Toronto. We're going to Pittsburgh. And they started going every place. And they started getting bigger TV budgets. When they did the TV ad, that was a million dollar year for donor with Fago. And uh, Mort, flashy. Flashy in how he dresses, flashy in how he sells. He wants to have commercials with celebrities in them. So he gets Soupy Sales, Marvin Soupman, who, who's delivered the line, Washington may be the father of our country, but Fago is the pop. <laughs> that sounds like Soupy, doesn't it? Uh, nowadays, the, uh, the advertising for Fago is handled by a company called TMV. Uh, they do billboards, they wrap trucks, and they do a lot on social media, but we don't see much TV. It's pretty darn expensive to do TV. But back in the day, um, Fago was really trying to go national, and that started to eat up their budget pretty fast when you try to put those ads all over. This is a chart of Detroit's population. Now, when the Fagansons started Fago, or started the company, they had awful timing. They were two weeks into a global recession that went on for about two years. That's when they decided to start a new company in 1907. Uh, the thing that really helped them was this chart shows the population, as I described at the beginning, just zooming up in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, kind of zoomed in the 50s when it hit its pinnacle at about 1.8 million, and then it began a steady decline. So one reason why Fago might want to expand its company and go regional or even national is there were fewer people in Detroit. It had a lot of consequences. One of the consequences was fewer local people to drink the pop. By then, of course, 
they could move it other places. But now they were getting into all these other towns, trying to decide how far could they go. And the challenge at that time, people are moving out of Detroit after about the early 50s. And they're moving out at a pretty rapid clip. It didn't start in 67. It started long before then when, uh, when jobs were being moved to the south. Um, but the way people moved out of Detroit was they didn't all move out of like one neighborhood, like one block didn't go all together. So it would be empty houses here and there. And the Fagansons had about six acres of property and they guesstimated to do what they wanted to do. They needed a 30 acre site and they couldn't get one in Detroit. But they were loyal to their people, many of whom came to work uh, on foot or by bus or carpooling and they didn't want to leave the city, but they didn't know how they could stay. The city offered them, if you can believe it, the city said, you know, we got some land that you could use for your factory. It's called Zug Island, <laughs> which is like the worst place to make any kind of beverage. It'd be instant poison. They said, no, we can't really make pop on Zug Island. It's all, it's all chemicals there, not the right kind. Uh, they offered them, they well, said, maybe we could get them on the state fairgrounds. And that didn't really come to be. Um, meanwhile, what's happening around everybody is 1972, Barry Gordy moves, of all things, Motown Studios to Los Angeles. That's not Motown. Motown is here. He takes Motown Studios away. In 1975, the Detroit Lions become the, what, the Auburn Hills Lions? Yeah. They moved out. 1978, the Detroit Pistons do the same thing. Uh, Vlasic Pickles was sold that year. I know you remember that. Um, other brands are picking up and leaving. Uh, Mort Faganson, Mr. Frontman, is going around behind the scenes trying to put together a property deal someplace. Uh, somebody compared Mort at that time, a business reporter, compared him to a man with one foot on the dock and one foot in a rowboat that's starting to drift away from the dock. And we know that never really works out too well. And so he's quietly, he's not in the press, he's quietly trying to put together a deal for land and it's not happening. Uh, in the meantime, Fago expands its plant. This groundbreaking happened in 1986, but things were still bad. In 1983, Hudson's closed. We're just getting over that now, right? 1985, United Brands moved the Gnome and Verners out of the city and took 300 jobs with it. Same year, Stroh closed. How could Fago survive with all these icons? People really wanted to hang on to Fago and not just the pop. Well, so the question became, do we remain loyal to our employees and to the city, more importantly, or do we reach our destiny of becoming a national pop company? You know that Fago didn't leave. What you don't know, and I'm not going to tell you, what you don't know is what made them decide to stay. And thank you. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by My Warren. To hear more podcasts like this, visit mywarren.org. Again, that's miwarren.org. <laughs>